The Bob Murphy Show, episode 96. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this one, I'm going to be doing what the people want, the contributors to the show in the secret Facebook group. And you say, well, how, how do I join that? You go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. That's how. Thanks for asking. Anyway, after my interview with Brian Kaplan ran, which was episode 91, so that's bobmurphyshow.com slash 91, if you missed that one, we touched on, we focused on his new book on immigration and open borders, but then another big chunk of that episode was devoted to Brian's famous essay entitled why i am not an austrian economist and so a lot of people were saying hey you know you you guys didn't have enough time to really get into that bob why don't you just do a standalone episode to uh go over it and i think that's a good idea and so that's what i'm going to do in this episode uh i think what i'm just going to do it, rather than like say oh and then at this point brian said this and i said i'm just going to put that to the side and just from scratch address this uh essay Partly because what happened is we really just got bogged down on one issue of indifference. And, you know, so I'll hit that in, in this current episode, of course. But like I said, it's it's more I'm just going to be from scratch tackling Brian's essay, Why I'm Not an Austrian Economist. I'll also link, so again, for this episode, you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 96 to get these links. Besides some other obvious things that I'll link to, I'll include... There have been other Austrians who have formally responded to Brian in this essay that he wrote. And so at the links for this episode that you're listening to right now at slash 96, I'll give you a link to that too. But the, ex with the exception of Gene Callahan's point about um, indifference, because that's, that's something that really clicked when I read that at the time, when Gene wrote that in his critique of Brian, I think everything I'm going to be saying this is, is coming from me. Or if, if I read somebody else's critique of Brian, I've forgotten. Okay, so let me, so this is, this is going to get technical at points. So why don't I start out and give the big picture and I'll tell some stories from grad school. So I'll do the fun stuff and the, you know, the, the thing that the man on the street can get up front. And then later I'll get into the more technical stuff that only those of you who have, you know, really read human action and man economy and state and that kind of stuff might get the nuances. All right, so big picture, what's happening here is I'm sympathetic to where Brian's coming from because I had a similar experience, right? So Brian says in his essay that when he was in high school, he was a Rothbardian, and so was I. But then he went to do his undergraduate work at UC Berkeley and then went on to Princeton to get his uh, PhD. And that was the point when he was you know, leaving with his fresh PhD, going to teach at George Mason, where... You know, he decided to to throw poor Mises and Rothbard under the bus. Okay, so that's what happened. And Brian's story 
is basically, you know, oh, when I was younger and I didn't know any better, I was seduced by the Austrians. He doesn't use that word. I'm being provocative here. And then I, I saw the light and I realized when I went to, especially when I went to grad school, I realized oh, the neoclassicals aren't doing all the crazy stuff that Rothbard alleges in Man, Economy, and State or his essay, Reconstructing Utility and Welfare Economics, that I've been lied to. Okay, again, Brian didn't use such provocative words. And, and the reason I'm saying it is because I had a similar experience where, so I didn't go to UC Berkeley. I went to Hillsdale College and I went there specifically because of the Austrian program that they actually had Mises personal library was stored in the, you know, in the, in the basement, li the library archives of, of Hillsdale college. Okay. So that's why I went to Hillsdale was because I was a Misesian in high school as well. So I didn't get my disillusionment, if you will, until I went to NYU where I did my graduate work. And also I went to NYU because of the Austrian program there too. All right. So Specifically, it has to do with utility theory. And when I get into the more technical aspect of this episode right now, you know, half an hour from now, let's say, that's where I'll, I'll ex give you the exact details of what happened. All right. So the, it is true what Brian says in his essay that there's a sense in which even though modern neoclassical economists talk about cardinal utility functions, the actual basis of consumer preference theory is still ordinal. Okay. And, and so I had a, you know, like I say, a, an, a, not an epiphany, but a, a realization. Oh, wow. This is more nuanced than I realized. And even the first year I went down to the Mises Institute. So I went down when I was still a grad student at NYU to spend a summer there. And I remember I was writing like internally circulated essays arguing this point. And I, you know, I was arguing with some other people. I don't. Guido Hulsman, I don't know if he formally responded to me or was just kind of, you know, but but Hulsman and Jeff Herbner, you know, those guys were, they were very polite and everything. And they were, you know, gracious. Oh, yes. Okay. We're, you know, anyone's interested in, in Rothbard. This is good stuff. And they were pushing back. And I remember I was thinking, no, no, you guys don't get it. Look at how cool the math is. Okay. So, but as I got older, I realized, oh no, the mainstream guys are nuts. All right. And that, so that's what I'm going to tell here in a minute. Uh, you know, when I said I'm going to tell some stories, that that's what I'm going to relay to you folks is just tell a few anecdotes about my experiences in grad school, which made me realize later, I don't mean like years later, I mean like, you know, a year or two later, that, oh, wait a minute, the Austrians are basically right. In the grand scheme of things, yeah, if I have to pick a bunch of economists in terms of advising governments or just telling the public how does the market economy work or what's the problem with socialism or here's some government policies. What do you guys think? And ladies, that I realized, oh my gosh, the economists I've met who are associated with the Mises Institute, it's not even close. They are way better and more trustworthy of giving solid, useful, wise advice or feedback compared to some of the people I met you know, who are on the faculty at NYU. And so, and even though some of the smartest people I've ever met with the sharpest minds were the faculty at NYU. Okay. So that's, that's partly what happened too, in terms of why I originally was knocked back on my heels is when I went there, I was, you know, I had this sort of stereotype that, Oh yeah, these mainstream economists are a bunch of idiots. And I realized, Oh no, these guys are super sharp. Like again, some of the most intelligent, sharp minds I've ever met in my life. And so then when I saw though, the deficiencies in their economic approach, that's, 
you know, when I realized, wow, these guys have gaping blind spots in their analysis or their framework. And so clearly it's not because they're dumb. It's because the framework they're using is ill-suited to give them guidance on navigating the world of economic policy or, again, just their understanding of how does the economy work or what happened with socialism. They just did not, in my mind, have have the first clue. All right. So that's what that's what happened with me. So it's again, I'm sympathetic. I get where Brian's coming from, but um it seems like he just never, you know, once he lost that boyhood fascination with the Austrian school and then started hanging out with the cool kids, he's still running with them. Whereas I realized, wait a minute, these guys aren't actually all they're cracked up to be. I'm gonna go back to the people that I ditched in high school. All right. So that's the idea. Okay. Um why don't I go ahead and tell the stories now? That's the fun stuff. And then I'll start making more formal, substantive points. All right. So here I've got, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I got seven little anecdotes to illustrate what I'm talking about. So on that last point, I'll do that one first on the socialist calculation debate. I, so I was at NYU and I was um, you know, going every week. There was this thing called the Austrian Colloquium, Mario Rizzo ran um, when I first started going to Israel Kirzner was still attending it. But then as I was there, he, he semi-retired and, and stopped coming in every week. But, you know, it's a great thing. A lot of people in the area, Roger Koppel, Joe Salerno, uh, I'll stop naming names because I want to forget somebody. So every week they'd come and present and it was an Austrian colloquium. So it was something, typically it was like, you know, using Hayek's approach on this issue. Like that was kind of the, the standard thing. And, um, and so somehow for one week, it was the socialist calculation debate was the issue. And so I was, you know, reading a paper on that in my spare time, or we were doing a study group or something for a problem set from our micro class or whatever. And a guy who was in my program with me, so, right, so he was also getting a PhD in economics from NYU. And by the way, at the time, NYU was in the top 20 econ programs in the world. They're just so you, you know, you know, that this, this is a pretty good program. My joke is because they they hired a bunch of people either as I was leaving or soon after I left, like Thomas Sargent and stuff. And so at this point, NYU was in the top 10. So my joke is when I went to NYU, it was in the top 20, then I left and it went into the top 10. Okay. And, and this guy that I'm talking about was one of the smarter, you know, brighter guys in our program too, right? So this isn't like the kid that was on the verge of failing or something. And we were talking about the socialist calculation debate and he, you know, he vaguely knew about it. And, and he was like, yeah, I mean, obviously the socialists won that. And just in general, he, he was mystified that I would have, that I walked away from that debate and, you know, the, the 20th century argument over socialism and that I thought the Austrians had won. And he was like, no, I mean, just in general, a central planner, whatever, whatever the, the the competitive equilibrium outcome is, right? So, you know, figure out what would the market economy do with, you know, resources and the social welfare function, blah, blah, blah. Here's what the competitive equilibrium outcome would be. I guess it wouldn't be the, sorry, it wouldn't be the social welfare. It would be the utilities of the consumers, right? Because it's decentralized the market outcome. That's what it would be. And then the central planner can always just mimic that outcome, right? So socialism can always, do at least as good as capitalism. But then if we identify flaws 
with the market outcome, you know, things that we wish were different, we have the option of tweaking it and making it even better. Right. And he's saying this to me like it's perfectly straightforward, you know, it, as if I said, would you rather have the ability to have your income be just even numbers or all numbers or something? It's like, well, why would you tie a hand behind your back? I don't get it. Right. So that's, that's what, what his statement, you know, so I, at the time I was, I was astounded that, that that's how glib he was, that he just in the course of like two sentences just said, oh yeah, central planner can obviously just mimic whatever the market outcome would be, but he could also improve upon it. So at best, capitalism matches socialism and in general, it would be inferior. And, you know, that he was just looking at me like, what, what's, you know, I don't, I don't get it. What, do you, what, what am I missing here, Bob? That kind of thing. All right. So again, this is a guy getting a PhD in economics at NYU. And by the way, I should mention, it's not like he's a Marxist or something, right? The, these stories I'm telling, I'm, it's not that, I'm, that I was hanging out with the, the two people out of 100 who liked socialism or something or were fans of Oscar Lange. It, I mean, this, th- these examples I'm giving are, were the bright students in our program who were like deep thinkers. I, like, that's why I was friends with them. Right. So again, this is, uh, I'm not cherry picking here. This, these are represented. In fact, they're better than representative, meaning this is the cream of the crop of these stories I'm telling you guys. All right. So that was one, uh, same type of, uh, story, different example. I was in a, I can't remember because the the guy who was teaching it, he was like pinch hitting because it wasn't his normal class, but the regular guy was. So anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm trying to remember. The guy was a mathematical economist but I can't remember what the actual course was. But for whatever reason, he was teaching us, it was some, some type of, of uh, macro, and it had to do with co- conversions theory, right? So the issue, like, so he drew a production function, you know, F, open parentheses, is a function of capital and lo- the labor stock. It's in, a, in an economy. And capital, by the way, was just a capital letter K. It wasn't like a vector to show that, oh, yes, in principle, we know there are 16,000 different types of heterogeneous capital goods in with this index. No, no, no. Capital for the economy was a K with a subscript of T to show, oh yeah, the capital stock can grow over time or can shrink if you, you know, if you engage in capital consumption. All right. So you got your production function that summarizes what the economy can produce given inputs of the total capital stock and the total labor supply for a given time period. All right. And then boom, you get your output which is just some pile of output as opposed to like a heterogeneous collection of different types of goods. And so what he was saying is there was this puzzle that why was it historically that there was such a big gap between the output of the USSR and the United States and that, you know, you would have expected over time that that gap would have been reduced more quickly than in fact it had been. And he was saying, you know, you know, you might say it was, that because they had different technology, like different production functions, you know, that, that would explain it. So, so the deal being, just to make sure you guys aren't getting lost, when they would try to estimate this equation and they would try to come up with, okay, like what's, what's the relevant labor supply? And then you might augment the, the labor supply for quality, right? So if, if labor is more skilled, then, you know, a, a skilled laborer might count for three unskilled labor. You know, you'd come up with stuff like that because you got to just put in an L for labor supply, and you'd look at the difference in an output per capita, let's say. And so that would have to ultimately be explained either by the fact that the capital stock per head was way different or 
the production function was different. And he was saying, well, it can't be that the production function is different, right? Because he's saying, you know, by the 60s and 70s, plenty of the most capable Soviet students went to Western universities, you know, to study engineering and whatever, physics, chemistry, what have you, and come back to the Soviet Union, right? So they had the latest technological know-how. They knew technological recipes and formulas for how do you convert inputs into outputs. So the F function in our model had to be basically the same between the U.S. and the USSR. So that can't be the difference. And so, you know, geez, it's got to be the capital stock. And then, but that would imply... A, a, a disparity in the amount of capital per head that was just implausible, right? It would, it would mean that the, you know, the U S would have to have way more capital per head in order to explain why their real output per capita was so much higher than in the Soviet union, you know, in, implausibly higher capital stock. Right. So that, so that was the puzzle and he just presented it and was like, okay. And then uh, he move on. And at no point did he mention even as an aside no, the fact that the United States was decently private property and you know rule of law and stuff like that, whereas the Soviet Union was explicitly a centrally planned socialist economy, maybe that has something to do. He didn't even say that, just throwing it out there, right? Now, you might have thought, and so this is the thing, that I originally, when he was making the, giving the discussion, I just thought, surely we all know the reason is because it's capitalism versus communism or socialism, whatever you want to call it. But we're not allowed to say that because, hey, we're going through the motions of writing down a mathematical model of the, you know what I mean? That's what, that's what I thought he, he was doing at first. But I realized, no, he himself in the real world did not know what the answer was. He didn't, it didn't even occur to him that the institutional differences might be relevant. Okay. And again, this is a, he was a very smart guy and also open-minded too. This was a guy, this professor he came when I was presenting at the Austrian colloquium, he came to listen to me, right? So he was, he was interested in alternative paradigms and things like that, right? So this wasn't some real dogmatic guy who just loved calculus. He was actually a pretty sophisticated thinker. That's what I'm saying with these anecdotes, like the, the professors I interacted with, I didn't go just to the number crunchers. I went to the ones that were a little bit out of the box thinking, like kind of weird guys, eccentric, because I knew, I could at least talk to them. Like they were interested, you know, the fact that I was like going, you know, trying to go talk to Israel Kurzner or something. You're like, yeah, who, who is that guy? Wait, what's he doing? You know, I, I know he's got some legacy or some reputation. Who, who is he? What is this? Awesome? Those are the ones I'm talking about here with these anecdotes. Okay. So there's that, which again is kind of interesting that you would think a professional economist at a top 20 school when telling a, a class of students who are getting their PhDs in economics from that top 20 school why is it that the U.S. consistently produced more per capita than the USSR? Maybe it had something to do with capitalism versus socialism. You think just to even throw it out there and say, "Now nah, it would be difficult to formalize." It. No, didn't even bring it up, and nobody in the class brought it up either. They're all just sitting there, like, "Hmm, well, maybe it's a monotonic." Blah, 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 blah. I'm bluffing at this point. I don't remember what they actually were saying mathematically. Could have been the, the solution, but it was not. Hey, maybe it's because freedom, baby. No, didn't come up. Okay. Uh, oh, here's a fun one. Another time, they were unionizing. The, the UAW, United Auto Workers, were unionizing the grad students at NYU. So, by the way, folks, yes, I actually, at one point in my life, was part of a union. And because I, I was forced to join against my will, incidentally. And since I'm telling little stories here, 
let me mention, they just lied through their teeth, the UAW. All right, let me tell you a real quick story since I said the provocative thing. So they came, we were grad students, right? So that's who they were unionizing. Even though we were at New York City, the UAW comes over and wants to unionize the grad students at NYU because, you know, we were being oppressed having to grade papers and whatever in exchange for getting a PhD. And uh, there was, so under labor, under U.S. labor law, an employer, if, if he knows the employees are contemplating bringing in a union and, you know, joining a union, unionizing a, a shop, under U.S. labor law, the employer is not allowed to threaten him or them, I should say, right? So the employer can't say to the workers, hey, I know you guys have union representatives coming around during lunchtime and, you know, handing out leaflets and whatever, but let me just let you know, if you guys vote for the union, then our labor costs go up and we're going to have to let 10% of you go. It is illegal for the employer to say stuff like that because that's a threat, okay? So the economists on the faculty of NYU are in a tight spot because, you know, they'd be going to class and their students would understandably raise their hand and say, hey, what do you, what do you think about the UAW? And, you know, they're telling us we can get higher stipends and stuff that, I don't, you know, NYU's got a lot of fat that they squander and that there's plenty to go around and it wouldn't jeopardize how many scholarships they can give or fellowships, you know, even though they increase the stipends they give to the grads. So, you know, what, is that true? Or, you know, and so the, the faculty didn't want to answer because they were afraid they're going to break the law. And so they, you know, we're, we're asking the administration, the administration consulted with its lawyers and they sent out a memo to all the faculty saying, Hey, if students either in class or, you know, office hours or ever ask you to comment on this, you know, the UAW's efforts to come in and unionize the grad students here. Uh, our, le- our legal counsel has you know, given us guidelines and you, you, you know, proceed with extreme caution. You can just very in the abstract discuss a general situation, but, you know, you absolutely cannot come off as making predictions about what would happen in our specific situation. It can't be about the UAW and NYU you know, really, if you're going to talk about it at all, just keep it very abstract and hypothetical about, you know, some generic firm in a, in a union. You can't make it sound like you're making predictions about what's going to happen here. Otherwise, that's in violation of federal labor. Law. Was, the memo said something like that. So the union agitators got that and they photocopied, you know, snippets from that thing and plastered the posters all over campus with the headlines NYU administration tells faculty how to break the law and get away with it, right? That's the kind of rhetoric they're using. I had union agitated, like, you know, they recruited sympathetic people among the grad students, right? Like ones that are kind of left-leaning or in some cases extremely left-leaning, like outright socialists, to go around, you know, who wanted the union to come in and then they would go and talk to their friends and whatever and, and try to say, hey, when the vote comes, you're going to join the union, right? And here's why. Look at all the benefits. And so one of them said to me, hey, Bob, you think of joining the union? And I said, no, nah, I, don't, I don't like unions or whatever I said. You know, something very probably shocking to the kid. And he said, well, are you, do you get a stipend? And I was like, yeah, I'm on, I'm on a fellowship, you know, because I was getting some kind of Austrian fellowship. Yeah, I do. And he said, well, if, you know, if the unionization occurs and you didn't vote to join the union, you know you're going to lose your stipend, right? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. And so I went and emailed, you know, the administration, whoever the relevant person was, and I'm like, the administration say, is that true? And she wrote back and said, no, of course that's not true, right? So that's the kind of thing when, I, when I'm saying, they just flat out lying and scaring people and doing, you know. So that's just one isolated case. And I know you can go back to and say, oh, but 1905, some mine company used thugs to come in and bust up unions. Okay, maybe they did. And if so, that was wrong. 
But I'm saying my personal experience, the UAW was a bunch of liars. Okay. So anyway, it, during this process, the provost of NYU was going around to the different schools, like the, the schools of the arts and sciences or whatever, of which, you know, I was in the economics department and uh, was talking to the grads. You know, he would have meetings with the grad students just, just sort of asking like, you know, an airing of grievances for uh, Festivus, right? Just wondering, why are you so unhappy? Like, why is it that the union's getting traction to come in here? Uh, you know, because there were, there were lots of issues because everything would have to be formalized. So that was one thing. So like one of the professors, you know, was sort of lamenting and saying, you know, I do things like I'll get a, I'll hire a grad student for, uh, you know, on a given summer, like if I'm working on a paper and I need him to go, you know, research a bunch of stuff at the library to help me get a paper done, you know, I'll, I'll get a grad student maybe and, and and pay him some money on the side. That kind of thing would not be allowed, right? Because everything would have to be formalized. It would have to go through the union. It'd have to be a regular contract. And, you know, so just, so this guy was saying little things like that, I'm not going to be able to do anymore, right? Because I'm not going to hire someone full-time for a year with benefits and blah, blah, blah when I just kind of needed them for a four-week stretch over the summer while I was working on a paper, you know, that kind of thing, right? So that these are the sort of things. So the administration's wondering, like, what the hell? You know, they don't want the UAW coming in and being in between them and the grad students. So they're going around just trying to get feedback and input from the grad students. Like, why, why are you voting? You know, why, why are you going to bring them in here? And by the way, this is now my personal aside. The reason is because the way it was presented to us was, do you want more money? I mean, who wouldn't vote for that? I mean, I didn't, but <laughs> because I didn't like the principle. But that's what they were saying. Like, yeah, you vote for us and we'll get the, you know, we'll get you all more stipends. And, you know, we promise they won't, they, they won't load more work on you because we'll make sure they don't. You know, we'll sue them if they do. Okay, so that's why everybody voted. He's like, yeah, well, I'll take more money. Why not? So, um, so anyway, so this guy, he's going, so he's talking here to a bunch of a, people getting a PhD in economics. Now, I wasn't actually present. I should disclose my friend who was there. He told me after what happened at this meeting. And so the, you know, the provost is like, why are you guys so unhappy? And, and so the one guy raises his hand. And this, again, this, this isn't some dumb person. This was one of the leading guys. He was from Turkey. He was very sharp quantitatively. And, uh, and you know, one, one of the, like, quote, smartest guys in our program. And he said, well, what we want is... Um, we want help like subsidies on NYU housing, right? Cause the, the students at Columbia, you know, Columbia university, which was uptown, you know, I, I know I have some friends who are getting their degrees there and they say that Columbia is, you know, part of the package is they subsidize the, the apartments. Okay. So background NYU owned a bunch of apartment buildings in New York city. And so you could, you know, when you went there, you could stay in NYU housing if you wanted to you know, and they charged rent for it. And so this guy was saying, if you're a grad student at NYU, you should pay a lower rent than just some random person who happens to be living in, you know, so in other words, it, it wasn't merely reserved just for students. Like, like when I was at NYU housing my first year, cause I didn't, you know, I didn't know any better. And that's where I went across the hall from me. There was some lady who'd been living in that building, you know, since 1960 or something. So he's probably had rent control. All right, so that's so just to make sure these weren't mere. We're not talking mere dormitories here. These are like actual big buildings that normal people were living in, even though they happened to be owned by NYU. The buildings, not the people. Okay, so so that's what he said. And so the provost goes, 
okay, well, I can certainly, um, you know, right now we're giving you a pile of money in terms of your stipend and letting you spend it as you see fit. If you want to stay at NYU housing, you're free to do that. But if you want to, you know, live in a different apartment that's not owned by NYU, we're just thinking we're giving you the money. You can make that choice on your own. He said, now, if you want, yeah, we can we can knock the rent down if you choose to live at NYU housing. But of course, that means then the stipend we give you has to be lower. And so, you know, from our perspective, that's just limiting your choices. So, you know, why don't we just give you the money and let you spend it as you want? That That's kind of where we're coming from. And this student responded. He actually said, remember, he's getting a PhD in economics. He said, no, we should get the same stipend and you should give us a break on the rental price because NYU owns the building, so it doesn't cost you anything to give us a break on the rent. That, that's what his claim was, all right? So when I heard that, that's when I, it really occurred to me that even though a lot of these students, especially the, you know, the foreign ones, were coming to NYU to get a PhD in economics, they, weren't, they didn't think like an economist. They were, they, they were good at math. Like I realized, what, like my background, I had from junior high been like listening to Rush Limbaugh. And then of course I got into more sophisticated stuff. I was reading op-eds from Walter Williams and Thomas Sowell. Then of course I got into Henry Hazlitt and Rothbard and you know, Mises and so forth. And so I had all that background. So of course I immediately could see the fallacy, you know, the issue of opportunity cost there, that kid's statement, or that guy I should say guy, he's not a kid, young adult. But he didn't because, you know, he had grown up, if anything, what he thought of as economics was solving a system of equations to find the equilibrium outcome. That's what economics was to him. It was not thinking through, you know, real world applications of stuff and principles of opportunity cost that, hey, let's look at the latest silly thing a politician said. What's the fallacy here? None of that. That's not what economics was. It was a, it was a bunch of applied math problems. Okay, so... That's another example of the kind of thing I mean. Different one, some of the women in our program were presenting their like third year paper. We had to do paper and they were doing it on paid family leave, right? Because is it still an issue today? The U.S. is one of the, you know, is like the only modern or not modern, what do they call it? Uh, you know, OECD country that doesn't provide mandated family leave for, uh, you know, when women have a baby and that kind of stuff. And so that's, you know, they were doing stuff on that. And so I went to their presentation and it was a popular thing, you know, because it was a hot button issue. And so they had a better turnout for their presentation than just about anybody else in our class did for that one. You know, in other words, people outside, of the, it was like for a, a paper writing course that we had to take as part of the, you know, to get our degree. But I'm saying they had people from around the department or whatever came to that because they liked the issue, whereas no, you know, nobody else cared about the stuff that the rest of us were doing. Okay. So it was a real hot, but in, in the entire presentation, there was not one nod toward the possible cost of such policies. You know, there was a lot of fancy econometrics and blah, blah, blah. And we did this and, but there was nothing about any downside to the policy. And so we did in the Q and a, you know, I'm trying to make the point in, I promise you, the people present, they didn't even get what I was saying. And I was exaggerating. I was like, well, I mean, suppose the government said if a woman has a baby while she's working, the employer has to buy her a brand new SUV and give her three years worth of diapers and, you know, baby formula. And, you know, so you can't just see why, because there's this probability that 
hiring this lady is going to, you know, implicitly mean a hundred thousand dollar fine, if you will, that maybe employers will be less willing to hire women. Like you, you see how that works and just, nope. They did. They, and again, it's, it's not that they were evil and socialist and no, they just literally did not even get what I was talking about. And the, the one guy running the seminar, I could tell he did like the, the teacher of the class, the professor of the class who was a, a sharp guy. Like he, I could tell from his body language that he kind of perked up, like he had been kind of bored. And then when I was asking my question, he perked up. Or so I, I realized like he got it, but he was like one of the few people in the room. Like I was looking around. It's not like everybody was like, thank you. Somebody finally, no, just they're sitting there. Like, yeah. Can we get back to the uh, econometrics? What's, what's this guy rambling on about an SUV? What are you ta- There's no SUVs in this model. What are you talking about, dude? All right. <laughs> so that this is the kind of thing I'm talking. This was just, and I'm just, I'm just relaying these anecdotes because I, I happen to remember them. But this is the kind of stuff week in and week out that you would see. Oh, there was another one that just popped into my head. A game theorist. So this guy was super sharp, super sharp, famous within game theory circles. And he did a paper on police brutality. And he was modeling it. And he, so it was specifically on the what's so-called blue wall of silence, where the cops, you know, one cop does something horrendous and then all the other cops just keep their mouth shut because, hey, we, we stand behind cops and cops don't you know, narc on each other, that kind of stuff. And so he did a paper on that and and he motivated in the beginning. He was like, you know, because like if somebody accused my colleague here at the department of academic dishonesty, you know, which is like be kind of analogous to the police brutality for, for an intellectual, you know, or like accuse so-and-so of of plagiarizing somebody in one of their papers. He he said, you know, I'm asking, what would I do? I don't think I would just reflexively stand with my colleague and always say professors are right. I think I would look at the case and did it, right? So he's sitting there saying, you know, why is it that it seems to be the police who act this way, but not plumbers or not college professors, you know, that kind of thing. And not once in his paper or in his presentation did he even mention the fact that there was a, a monopoly, that, you know, the police are hired by the state and there aren't competing agencies. It didn't it didn't even come up. It didn't even occur to him that that might be relevant. So again, that, that's the kind of, you know, whereas... You know, he had some very clever mathematical model and, ah, we see if there's concavity in the production function, then then you can get a blue wall of silence on round three of the prisoner's dilemma. I'm just obviously making stuff up here, but that was his explanation. It had nothing to do with the fact that there's a monopoly that, or, or even the fact that it was a monopoly wasn't a necessary but an insufficient condition, which you could understand someone maybe saying. And when I went to him afterwards and talked to him about it, you know, he didn't say I was nuts, but you could see he was like, eh, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't, he thought what I was bringing up was kind of, uh, you know, not, not critical of the story that it was just a, an interesting detail, but no, that's not what's driving the result. Okay. What do we got here? Uh, <laughs> so I had a different one. Why don't I do another game theory? Was this is a different game theory professor? Again, very sharp guy. He's telling us a story. So he, what he was trying to do was motivate, he had been doing research on people with incomplete preferences. And uh, so that was kind of his area, you know, meaning like maybe you have two alternatives and you can't decide, say which one is, if you rank one versus the other. Okay, so that was his deal. So anyway, in class one day, this was like the Game Theory 2 class or whatever, he's, he's telling us about what we're trying to do is in a model incorporate, let's call it envy, Okay, into the utility function formally, right? So that because normally the way you do stuff in game theory is you just get payouts 
from whatever the outcome is, you know, like there's the players all adopt a strategy and then you just say, okay, given what each player's strategy is, boom, 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 here's what the outcome is. And then they all, they have a payoff function saying for that outcome, here's the vector of cardinal numbers that each player gets, which is a payout, you know, for that outcome. And then of course the players seek to maximize their payout. And so what he was showing though, is that, okay, what if instead, you know, you formally put in there that the players care not just about how much they get, but about how much other players get, or, you know, at least possibly like to allow that is a dimension in the analysis, let's say. Okay. So to motivate this new innovation in the field of game theory of saying players might care about the payoffs of others, he told a story, which, you know, I, I believe was real. I don't think he was making it up. It sounded like he was real. He told it like it was real. And it had to do with, so first I got to explain to you what the ultimatum game is. Okay, so in game theory, there's this thing called the ultimatum game. So let's just, there's two players and there's a, like let's say a $10 pot. Okay, and so the first player makes an ultimatum offer to the second player and proposes a division of the $10, right? So I get six, you get four, and it's a take it or leave it offer. Okay, so the, the first player, again, announces a division, and then the second player only has two choices, can either say yes or no. If the player says no, they both get zero. If the second player says yes, then they get the division of that $10 pot that the first player proposed. Okay, so the way you formally model that is the first player announces, you know, the strategy is here's what the division is that I'm going to announce. And the second player, you might think, oh, it just says yes or no. That's the, it's a two-pronged choice. No, because you got to formally specify the strategy to say, based on what the proposal is, do I say yes or no? Okay, so technically, player two's strategy is I have to come up with a, a function or a, you know, an announcement to say for any possible distrib- or proposal I see, what do I, what's my answer, right? So that's the, that's the actual strategy that player two is going to adopt, okay? So now it, t- it turns out in this game, in terms of what's called a Nash equilibrium, you can get just about anything you want, right? Player two, for example, it would be a Nash equilibrium for player one to say, I propose that I get $1, and you get $9. And then player two's strategy is for any offer that's $9 or higher, I say yes. If I see anything that's less than $9, I say no. And technically, that would be a Nash equilibrium, even though that might surprise you. And the reason is because what Nash equilibrium says is given what the other player's doing is the player you're you know analyzing at the moment is his or her strategy a best response to the you know fixed stipulated strategy of the other player if that's yes for each player in the game then that's an Nash equilibrium so what i just said that's true because in other words given that player two is strategy is you got to announce you're giving me nine dollars or more or else i say no and veto it and you get zero well then player one's best response is you know or yeah his best response is to offer nine dollars right to player two because then player one gets the one because if he offers anything less, he gets zero. So it's better to get one than zero. And he wouldn't offer more because like he wouldn't offer 950 to player two because then player one would only get 50 cents. So you'd rather get $1 than 50 cents, right? So that's why it's a Nash from his point of view or it's a best response. And then from player two's point of view, 
given that player one is offering him $9, then his strategy of accepting anything from $9 and above works, right? He gets nine and he can't get more than nine given that that's what player one's offer is. Okay, so it's a Nash equilibrium. However, it's not subgame perfect. And so here's a refinement on the original Nash equilibrium concept to say if there's a subgame in a in a you know in a broader game, then if you insist on there being a Nash equilibrium within each subgame also, then the whole overall strategy profile of all the players is not merely a Nash equilibrium, it's a subgame perfect Nash equilibrium. All right. And so that's why, so that with the original thing I just said, even though it would be a Nash equilibrium, it's not a subgame perfect Nash equilibrium, right? Because suppose player one said to player two, I'll offer you $7. So at that point now, player two's only strategy is accept or not. And so if he accepts it, he gets seven. If he says no, he gets zero. So if he were to reject it, then that would that wouldn't be a Nash equilibrium if it were just in the game of player two being offered seven dollars okay and so so what ends up happening is in that original game i said that player one offering nine and player two accepting nine or above and rejecting anything below the reason that goes through the reason that survives as a Nash equilibrium is because all the bad stuff happens off the equilibrium path that's the idea another way of motivating it is like somebody goes into a bank and says, I'm strapped with dynamite. Give me all the money in the till or I'm going to blow us all up. And so the bank teller, you know, rationally says, well, gee, I'd rather stay alive and have the bank robbed than get blown up. So he gives them the money. But the idea is that's not a subgame perfect Nash equilibrium because if the bank teller said no and called his bluff, now does the bank robber really want to kill himself rather than just walking out of the bank empty handed? Okay, so that's the kind of thing. So it's kind of like, they're not exactly the same, but this idea of subgame perfect Nash equilibrium was invented to rule out non-credible threats in terms of the evolution of the field. Okay, so that's just an aside. But in any event, now that you know what the definitions are, I'm saying for that that ultimatum game, assuming that there's an infinitely divisible w- way to to divide up the offer, right? So that it's not just down to a penny, but you can offer a half a penny or a tenth of a penny and blah, 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 right? So that the amount of that original offer is infinitely divisible in terms of the units. The unique subgame perfect Nash equilibrium is that player one says, hey, you know what, player two? I propose that you get zero and I get 10. And player two says, okay, I accept. That is the unique subgame perfect Nash equilibrium in that game. Right? And I won't belabor it, but the idea is just, you know, if you don't see that, so check that it is subgame perfect. Player one, if his announced strategy is you get zero and I get 10, for player two, you might say, yeah, but if he accepts it, he gets zero, right? And if he rejects it, he also gets zero. And so he's indifferent, right? So he'd he'd be willing to accept it. He doesn't have a, it is a best response, right? He can't do better than getting zero if he finds himself in that situation. And so that that is a subgame perfect Nash equilibrium and try to come up with any other one you can't because Again, in any other subgame where player two is being offered a positive amount, he has to accept because at that moment, at that moment of choice, if he's in that branch of the game outcome or the tree, if he accepts, then he gets some positive amount. And if he rejects it, he gets zero. 
So to be sub-game perfect, player two's strategy can't ever have him rejecting a positive amount, all right? And so that, so the, the intuition is, so player one would just keep offering smaller and smaller amounts, right? So it wouldn't, so player one, rather than saying, here, I'll offer you a dollar and I'll keep nine, that's not a best response for player one because player two and all the sub-games is going to accept anything. So player one would do even better if he only offered 50 cents and kept 950. But that's not sub-game perfect. That's not an equilibrium either because player one would do even better if he only offered a dime and kept 990 for himself, right? So you just keep using that logic. And because we assume the strategy space is infinitely divisible, you can't even, you know, you might think, oh, well, you get it down to a penny. Well, no, because we're allowing for him to offer a half a penny and they, you know, to keep $9 and 99 and a half cents for himself. So if you allow that, the only logical stopping point, the only place you can stop is when he offers him zero. Okay. So I know so I spent a lot of time on that. So, but you need to know that background. So that's how the ultimatum game works. If you're going to use the formal tools of game theory to solve it, the unique in a two player game like that, where player one is proposing how we're going to divide $10, the unique sub game perfect outcome is player one says, you know what? I'm going to offer you zero and I'll keep 10. Player two now knows I can either accept it and I get zero and he gets 10. Or I can reject it. We both get zero and player two accepts it. He says, yeah, I'll take zero and let you get 10. That's the unique subgame perfect outcome. So anyway, a bunch of game theorists were at a conference, apparently. This is the story our professor told. And they said, you know, they gave, they had a survey for all the game theorists in the crowd. That, I don't know if they handed out paper or what. And they said, in, you know, suppose you were actually playing this game in, in real life and you were player one. What would you propose is the, the split? And they collected all the papers and they're going through it. And every single one said, I would propose that I get 10 and the other guy, you know, I would offer zero. And one person said, I will, I would offer a 50, 50 split. And so the, you know, the way the, my professor is telling the story is to say, what? And they, they were astonished and like, who, who did this? And then they looked to see who it was. And it was Robert Allman, who was a, like a giant in game theory. And, and they said, master, and I, I really do think the professor used the word master. They said, master, why would you offer a 50-50 split? And Amon said, because you never know how crazy the other guy is going to be. And all the, you know, the, the game theorists in the crowd are like, oh, right. That's the way he told the story. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I lost you. Perhaps I spent too long setting up that story. But when you, if you got what I was getting across, I mean, that's another time when I realized, oh my gosh, these people really believe their models. Because anyway, obviously, in the real world, that would be incredibly reckless for you to say, you know what, how about I keep everything and you get zero? And then the, <laughs> the second player can either go ahead and let you keep the 10 and get nothing, or he can reject it. He still gets nothing, but at least stops you from getting all of it, which is what you proposed. I mean, okay, so that, there's that. Uh, let's see. Another one, for my dissertation, I was doing a lot of work on what's called radical uncertainty. because my, my Advisor was Mario Rizzo. And so he, you know, he had some stuff on that, which since there's, there's some cool stuff. I know some of the more Rothbardian types don't like that stuff. There, there's something there. I'll, I'll just put it that way. And I, I think more work could be done on that. But in any event, so that's what I had. And, you know, part of it's like the difficulty in trying to, to like, you, you don't know what you don't know, that kind of stuff, right? So it's not enough just to say, oh, there's, random variables, but we know their mean and distribution and higher moments and blah, blah, blah. And so the agents optimize in terms of rational expectations, given the uncertainty. 
I, I was just trying to show that no, there's there's this strain in the literature of people stressing so-called radical uncertainty or sheer ignorance, as Israel Kersner called it. And so these mainstream attempts to sort of keep their original models with certainty and then just tweak them by bringing in random variables, but what you know, you know the properties of them that that's just kind of pushing it back one step. You know, well, what if you're wrong about what the what the mean is of that random variable, that kind of stuff. All right, so I'm doing that. And so there's a guy on my committee, again, a very out-of-the-box thinker. That's why he's on my committee. He's reading that stuff, and he, he's just talking to me, at, you know, in the hallway about this. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to get across intuitively. Like, yeah, I mean, there, there's this idea that when you're acting in real life, you know, you don't, you don't know even the structure of the future, right? It's not merely that you don't know exactly what's going to happen next Tuesday. There could be things that happen that you didn't even know were possible, right? So it's like the, the very framework, like how do we as economists deal with that? And, you know, maybe some of these mainstream models aren't the right. And then guy says to me, oh, okay, yeah, I think I see what you're saying. You know what? Write that up, put it into a two-period model. Let me see that in a two-period model. <laughs> I was just getting through telling him why you can't model certain things, and he wanted to see that in a two-period model. So he could really get it. I mean, okay. So there's another example. And then the last one I'll do here is I was writing a paper up on, or actually no, it was part of my dissertation. This other guy that was on my committee. It, it had to do with Bombavrik's point about um, the critique of the naive productivity theory, right? So if you listen to my three-part series on capital and interest, I'll link it in the show notes page. Again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 96. I'll link it there. If you, you'll listen to it there, you'll see it. But w- what ended up happening is I came up mathematically. Like I, in other words, Bombavrik's verbal insights, I figured out what the heck is going on because it certainly looks like in the mainstream neoclassical tradition and all the models, you know, the, the workhorse models we were learning at NYU, it looks like in equilibrium, the real rate of interest equals the, quote, marginal product of capital. And yet that was the central fallacy that Bombavrik was trying to blow up with his critique of the naive productivity theory, right? And so, I've, and I figured out what it was. And the quick answer is it's the mainstream assumption often that there's just one good, right? You have F of K comma L and that produces a pile of output and you can consume some or, they're, or add it to the capital stock. So implicitly there, you're assuming the capital good and the consumption good are the same thing and there's only one good. That's, that's what's driving that result, if you have two or more goods, then the, the mainstream result falls away. Then it's not true that interest equals the marginal product of capital. Okay, so I built a mo- you know I built a, a, a math model to show that, like a standard neoclassical model. It just it had uh, a distinct. It had like m- machines and and output goods. And I was showing that you see. So the issue is the price of the machine priced in terms of output good could vary. All right, so. This guy, again, super sharp guy, deep thinker, he calls me to my office or his office and he, he said, I don't, I don't get what you're doing here with this, this interest stuff. And, he, and he, so he writes a, a PPF and he shows on one axis is output in T plus one and on the other axis is output in T and he has, you know, a regular PPF looking shape and then he has a, you know, transformation line and saying, this is how, he said, this is the only interest that I or just about any of my colleagues know. What are you talking about? And so he just showed like, ah, you know, technology allows us to produce, to, to effectively transform present goods into a greater number of future goods through, through, you know, through capital investment. And, you know, here's our preferences based on time preference or in subjective impatience, you know, drawing an indifference map on that. 
and you optimize where the, you know they're they're tangent to each other, and that's you know that's how you how you decide how much to invest. And what, what are you talking about? And so to explain it to him, I was trying to say, well, okay, let's just say it's tractors and the, the consumption goods bananas. He's like, okay, and I was saying, so you see how you know in your model here, you're assuming that it's like sheep multiplying into future sheep. That you know, there's only sheep that you consume, but if you don't consume them, they just physically transform like 100 sheep this year turn to 110 sheep next year. So you're saying the real rate of interest has to be 10%. And he's like, yep, yep, yep. And I'm saying, okay, but you know, let's suppose it's tractors that you're using to harvest bananas. And I know that's goofy, but that's what I said. And he said, okay. And I said, so you see how, you know, now with, with the sheep, you know, if you asked what's the price of a sheep as a capital good, priced in terms of consumption good, it would just be, you know, one to one. Like you say, how many sheep do I have to give up to obtain one sheep? The answer is always one because of the same thing, right? That's not about economics. That's just saying the same thing has to be priced one in terms of itself. I said, but if now we relax that assumption and it's you're using tractors to harvest bananas, you can see how if I say, what's the banana price of a tractor? That's not one, you know, tri trivially or necessarily, it could be anything. It's based, you know, and I said, so once you have that flexibility, now you can see Bumbavrik's point. Okay. And so I, I'll stop the explanation there, but that that's what I was saying to the guy to show him that you see how critically the way you're thinking about it assumes or rests on the fact that there's one good. And notice that's not just a simplifying assumption that's pinning down that the price of the capital good has to be always one in terms of the consumption good. And so that's why Bumbavrik's critique doesn't work because you've assumed it away in general, if there's two or more goods, then Bumbavrik's critique holds, right? And so he's looking at the thing after I said that. And he goes, okay, well, assume I can transform bananas into tractors one for one. And then it goes back to my result, right? And I mean, that. <laughs> so I was like, well, yeah, that's true. But so that's the way he dealt with it. Like, in other words, I was showing him, he was relying on this knife edge result that the one type of model in which his result worked is because he was assuming one good. And then if you had two or more goods so that the price of, you know, in general, and, and the way he dealt with that was to say, well, I'll do, okay, if there's, if there's two goods, let me just assume I can physically transform the capital good into the consumption good one for one. And then that solves the problem. My, my analysis, my framework still works, right? So again, that's <laughs> rather than, you know, being blown away and, oh my gosh, you just, the scales fell from my eyes. I can't believe how potent and how much work that quote simplifying assumption of one good has been doing all these decades in my life. He's like, ah, I assume you can transform tractors into bananas one for one. Notice by the way too, like it's the one for one was important, right? It, it would have been a little bit different if it was three to one. Okay. So anyway, so those are some examples that took way longer than I thought it was going to, but anyway, hope you like that. Hey, boys and girls, you're invited to the Contra Cruise 2020 from October 17th to 24th, departing from sunny Miami. The Contra Cruise, of course, is always enjoyable, kids, but you don't want to miss this year because of the roast of Dave Smith. Now, believe it or not, folks, Tom Woods is actually not half bad. But Bob is the master of the roast. He is He's tremendous, and it would have been wonderful to, to have him here, but... He had to stay home practicing the pronunciation of the word nuclear. Good one, Tom. Why couldn't you be more like that on social media? Now let's see if Bob had anything up his sleeve when it came to Tom. All I'm saying, look, 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 folks, folks, folks. All I'm saying is, Tom, Tom, all I'm saying 
is that when you were in high school, if a kid on the football team said you were part of the loser brigade, that's just weird. That's all I'm saying. Just saying it's weird. Tom, what those kids did to you back then, it, it, it was wrong. It was wrong. But you need to let it go. Let it go. Ooh, good one, Bob. Of course, the big standoff last time was when Bob went head-to-head with Dave Smith. Get him, Bob. Hey, did you guys, I mean... Dave's show is really good, right? Part of the problem when you guys listen to it. Yeah, yeah, of course you do, of course you do. Great show, great show. Did you guys know that um, Dave actually has a sidekick, a co-host, if you will? Yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> Robbie the Fire, he's like a, a sidekick who doesn't get to talk very much. He, he's the Tonto of podcasting, folks. Really cool character. You get to hear three words per episode. <laughs> Ouch. I hope Dave has some thick skin. But Dave wasn't done yet. He swung back and swung back hard. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are like, oh, maybe that's just because he's lazy. No. No. Bob Murphy is such a good Misesian that he understands that even sitting on his fat ass is, in fact, action. Yikes. Better luck next time, Dave. Also, we'll be joined by special guest Ludwig von Mises, who will also participate in the roast. Listen to the podcast. But seeking to answer the question, why is Dave Smith so bad, you know? In what consists the poverty of his podcast? So remember, kids, it's the Contra Cruise 2020 from October 17th through 24th, departing from Miami on Royal Caribbean. For more details, go to ContraCruise.com. Okay, now let's move on to more general remarks here. In general, the modern neoclassical, in terms of the education I got at NYU in their models, they had no entrepreneurship, period. All right? It's not that they awkwardly fumbled with it. It was like, and by the way, William Baumel was like this amazing guy because he actually cared about the entrepreneur. And the whole point was like, geez, how do we get that in into our standard models? And so you might say, didn't you just contradict yourself? No, I'm saying the models and stuff we learned in our coursework, what you needed to do in order to get a PhD and get out of NYU with a PhD in economics, you literally could have done it without ever using the word entrepreneur to, to have that appear in a paper that you did or you read. That's possible. And the stuff, you know, William Bauman was doing down the hall, you know, some people might be interested, some not. In fact, that was like the whole thing, right? Like if the people who liked his stuff, it was because, you know, I think he's onto something. Maybe entrepreneurs do have, you know, maybe innovation, whatever that, that is important in the economy. Okay. So there's that. Um, there was no heterogeneous capital. Like I just explained to you guys. All right. Also, I'm going to say there was no money. And so in some sense, that was literally true. Like, you, you know, we'd study models that didn't have any money in them at all. But even the models, like if you're doing a central bank, Okay, so some of the models in the macro classes, of course, especially if they were going to justify Keynesian outcomes, like to come up with stuff like to say, ah, should the central bank adopt rules that they originally have to follow, that they, you know, they announce to the market, things like, oh, we will always set the interest rate based on the output gap, or should they rely on discretion? Okay, so to, to model something like that, you know, they'd have the central bank's utility function, you know, what, what do they care about? unemployment versus uh, inflation, 
blah, blah, blah. And they'd come up with stuff. So there was, in a sense, there was money in those models. And more generally, they would also have money in other types of models. But the way they would, if, if they had to have it in there to like have the agents, like the, the consumers want to hold money, they would just often have them directly get utility from it. So it would be like, if you wanted to have Picasso paintings in your model, how would you get, why would people be acquiring them? Well, you just directly plug in. Just assume holding a Picasso painting gives you utility. So that's the way they would get money in there. They would just assume, you know, they would just build right in that you get utility from holding money. Okay, so my point being, there was nothing in the structure of the model because in the world of the model, the agents knew everything. It was a barter economy. It was like a Walrasian economy where you didn't need money in order to solve the double coincidence of wants or things like that. It was just an equilibrium outcome of exchange and everybody optimized based on the announced direct barter price ratio announcement of vector of prices. Okay, so that's, that's what I mean. So again, summarizing, there is a, a legitimate sense in which the models we studied at NYU had no entrepreneurship, no heterogeneous capital, and no money. And so I'm saying, given that that's what they're working with, what are the chances they're going to think about the market economy in a sensible way? Or when they talk about central banks or socialized medicine, for that matter, that they're going to give sensible policy advice if the way they think about economies doesn't involve money, heterogeneous capital, or entrepreneurship. Whereas, of course, the Austrian school is foundational in those three things. Okay, so yeah, you know, Brian and his essays talking about certain things and, oh, the Austrians don't appreciate public choice. Okay, fine. But I'm saying the mainstream neoclassical economists don't understand money, heterogeneous capital, or entrepreneurship. And to the extent that they do, it's because there existed this alternate school of thought and they were forced eventually to grapple with it and to try to model it, you know, with their mathematical tools. Just like, for example, with the Bombavric stuff, like I said, in my dissertation, partly just as a nod to show, hey, everyone, I know all these cool techniques too. I'm smart. Look at me. I had a mathematical appendix where I formalized Bombavric's critique of the naive productivity theory. You know, so I had a, ne a neoclassical model and just showed in equations what Bombavric was saying, you know, to, to make it precise and formal. But I wouldn't have even thought of that had I not read Bombavric's verbal critique and had, you know, Mises and Rothbard and so on carry that forward to say it is a fallacy to assume that interest has something to do with the productivity of capital. No, it doesn't. Right. So that's had that verbal Austrian tradition not existed, it never would have even occurred to me to question when our professors taught us that, oh, yeah, at equilibrium, W equals the first derivative of the production function with respect to labor. Right. So wages equal the marginal product of labor in equilibrium. And R, the real rate of interest, equals the derivative of the production function with respect to K. The real interest rate equals the marginal product of capital. What could be more natural than assuming that? Right. And yet, no, those are very distinct things. Okay, and it, again, it wouldn't even occur to me to think of that, except I remember I was sitting there, I was struggling with that for months, that I knew Bombavric was right, and I knew the equations we were learning were right. And I was like, well, but they can't both be right. What's going on here? And then again, I, I realized, oh, because the equations, the model assumes there's just one good that's both capital and consumption in this economy. Okay, and I, once I had that insight, then I realized, okay, the way to show that now, let me show a model with two goods, and give you the general expression for the real rate of interest that is not equal to the marginal product of capital, and then show how if I reduce it to one good, my general expression reduces down to the ones they were using. Okay, so there's that. Um, let me also mention, oh, so Bob, you're saying the Austrians know everything? No, 
I, for years, have been saying I think there's deficiencies in the canonical Austrian approach and that when young, budding Austrian scholars say, what should I work on? I throw out these examples. So let me just mention those so it doesn't come off like I'm saying we're awesome and everybody else is a bunch of idiots. Um, on international trade, there was a lot of stuff that when I worked for Arthur Laffer and he was um, doing like a Robert Mundell framework and you know reading Laffer's papers when it comes to things like the trade deficit or more accurately, the current account deficit is the capital account surplus and that sort of stuff. I learned that those things, not from the Austrians. Okay, so it, nothing that Rothbard or Mises said about international trade is wrong. And I'll, actually, too, if you go back and read like the theory of money and credit, Mises says some pretty sophisticated stuff there about like forward markets and things that um, he doesn't talk about in human action, right? So theory of money and credit is a more technical work where Mises talks about stuff that sounds shockingly modern. Um, so he, you know, it's I haven't read that one in a while, but it's it's possible some of the stuff he gets into there. But I'm saying the general thing that you know Austrians, Rothbardians would know about how international trade accounts work. It's it's not. I learned more from other schools of thought on on that one issue. Okay, just saying. Also, just derivatives, financial markets in general. I think there's a ton of work that Austrians could do there. Also, because it's more conducive to an Austrian approach, right? So as you can look at mathematical finance, their baseline condition is not general equilibrium in a mainstream neoclassical sense. Their basic default condition is no arbitrage. Like that's how you do stuff like, you know, option pricing and things. And so that's much more sympathetic to an Austrian approach than to like Robert Solo or something. Okay. So there's that. And Along those lines, I've I've done this in some of my work here. Let me jot a note down to myself to link to the paper. Things like in in mainstream uh, financial analysis, real obvious stuff like oh, investors care about when it, when it comes to an asset, both the expected return, but also the implied risk or the volatility. And other things equal, you'd want an asset that has a higher expected return, but you'd also want one with lower lower standard deviation, let's say. Okay, that kind of basic stuff is not in the canonical Austrian works. It's just, you know, Austrians have the ERE and the real world. And that's kind of the, the two things. And I think there's a lot of in-between there that you could analyze fruitfully. To give an example that I use in one of my papers, um, if Let's say a kid's doing a, uh, or sorry, let's say a guy has a t-shirt business and he's based on a college campus and there's going to be a big game, right? The, the rival football team's coming into town and they're going to play the home team. And so normally the guy would print up t-shirts for both types of outcomes. Like, you know, I went to the the showdown in the snow in 97 and we won or whatever, or versus like, ah, you know, better luck next or, or selling t-shirts to the, the opposing fans. And, and so, you know, you just sort of hedge yourself and have t-shirts for both things. So the guy leaves town and then he leaves the student who's working for him in charge. And the student's really sure the home team's going to win. So he just does the whole print run, printing up, assuming that, you know, the t-shirt, in other words, suggesting that the home team won the game. And that's what the kid prints up. And then the home team does win the game. And so the kid makes a boatload of money because he's out, you know, in the parking lot after selling these t-shirts. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, give me that. That's great. Ha ha. 
And so then the, the owner comes back and the kid says, look at all the money I made. And the owner's like, wow, how'd you make so much money? And the kid says, oh, because I was so sure we were going to win. I just printed up a thousand shirts saying we won and then I sold them. And so you could see how the owner might be horrified and say, whoa, don't ever do that again. What if we had lost? Then nobody, you know, none of our fans would have won it, but you would have to sell these for rags. Or, you know, maybe the opposing team would have bought it just to be ironic and put it on social media to make fun of us or something. But you certainly wouldn't have sold a thousand shirts saying we won the game if we lost. And we would have lost, you know, we would have lost a ton of money. So in other words, in conventional mainstream finance, you'd, you'd handle that by saying the kid adopted a very risky strategy that paid off. He got, you know, in colloquial terms, he got lucky. And so it's true in terms of standard canonical Austrian work, you could say, or framework, you could say, ah, the kid adjusted the means of production to the desires of the consumers better than other entrepreneurs did. And that's why he reaped a pure profit. Okay. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's also a sense in which you can see how the owner would say, don't do that again. Next time there's a big game with our rival, I don't want you doing this strategy. It was too risky. Okay, so I'm saying that kind of simplistic duh analysis, it doesn't really fit well in the existing Austrian paradigm, at least as developed, you know, in the, in the canonical works. Let's see. And the last thing is there's no sense of a dynamic equilibrium. Again, the standard approach is you have the ERE where not only is there certainty, but everything repeats itself. It's, it's a static condition over and over, or you have the real world. And that's the two things the Austrians contrast. Whereas I think there's a, there's a lot you can learn from studying an intermediate thing where there's certainty, but conditions change over time. So the idea is we anticipate the change. So something real obvious, you, know, you don't know what I'm talking about. Like if you're modeling or trying to understand if, if the word modeling scares you because it sounds too technical, the price of oil, let's say that it doesn't really work to say, let's just assume the quantity of oil is the same year in and year out because it's a, it's a you know fixed resource, at least within certain parameters. All right? And so there's a sense in which the amount of oil available might be going down or you can contrast it with other things. But so the, this is the Herald Hotelings. I'll make a note of that. I wrote that up for Econ Lib. Analysis of how do you price a, a, a non-reproducible resource, Okay. So just something like that, where it's one thing to say, ah, well, let's say there's an apple tree that keeps shooting out apples and let's model that over time. And what's the equilibrium price of the apple tree or how much should seeds cost in terms of finished product? You go ahead and do that in terms of the ERE. But to say, oh, there's a bunch of barrels of oil and how much, you know, what's the equilibrium price of a barrel of oil? Let's assume that that's just going to last like that in forever into the future. That, that seems kind of odd that you would do that. Another example along these lines when Rothbard's analyzing the yield curve, he has some arguments that make it sound like, oh, in the ERE, obviously interest rates of all maturities have to be the same. And then, you know, so that's the, that's the ERE framework. And then there's the real world with uncertainty. And I, I think it, it's much more helpful to have an intermediate case where you could know that interest rates are going to rise, right? So you could have certainty and have spot prices changing over time. That's another way of talking about it. Or let's say right now we know three years from now there's going to be a frost and, it's, and certain crops are going to get hit hard. Okay, so we can model that. Let's assume we're certain. And it makes sense then to say, ah, yes, the, the spot price of oranges versus wheat might be different three years from now when the frost hits just some of them. 
than it is right now. And it's not because, oh yeah, there's the ERE and then there's the real where we don't know what's going on and stuff surprises. No, you could have a thing where real prices change over time and we, but we anticipate it. And, the, and the, that's, you know, so we make our plans knowing that stuff. Okay, so I'm calling that a dynamic equilibrium to contrast it from both a static equilibrium, the ERE, but also a disequilibrium situation where people are surprised by stuff. Okay, so now let's dive into Kaplan's stuff. He talks about utility function. Oh, one thing. He's, he clarifies and says, hey, in this, I'm not talking about Hayek so much. When I'm talking about Austrian economics, what I mean is the work of Mises and Rothbard. All right, so even there, it's, it's funny that he does that because Hayek was a socialist until he read Mises. Okay, so it's just kind of funny that Kaplan's, he, he doesn't say it in so many words, but he comes off as basically, yeah, when I'm saying that these Austrians who don't, you know, who are out there in the corner talking to the choir and they're, you know, they're not engaging with the rest of the profession and, you know, benefiting from all the things the rest of the profession's doing. Whereas Hayek, you know, he's grappling with the mainstream and he's, you know, he's more reasonable and moderate and he's eclectic and da da da. Okay, if it weren't for Mises sitting over in the corner, being the oddball, Hayek would have been a socialist still by Hayek's own admission, right? Hayek said he was a socialist until he read Mises' work, all right? So that's, again, it's, um, you know, Kaplan is lamenting that these Austrians think they're so different and they're not just being absorbed by the mainstream and just, you know, and I'm, I want to say, well, if they had followed his advice, then we might not be appreciating all these insights from Friedrich Hayek that he with acknowledgement says he got from Mises and then just to amplify the work of Mises. All right. So that's just kind of an ironic clarification that, that Kaplan made given what his enterprise is in this paper. Okay. So Brian talks about utility functions. And so here's the one area where I'm pretty sympathetic to what he's saying. So it is true that I'll see if I can even find it. I don't know if I can, I, I wrote it up and it was webbed at one point, but I don't know if it's still up there now. Yeah, modern consumer theory is ordinal, right? You, they assume that people have underlying ordinal preference relations, rank, a ranking of all possible outcomes taken two at a time. You can say whether one is strictly preferred to the other or you're indifferent. And then if you make some assumptions on those ordinal preference relations, you can then prove that there exists a cardinal utility function such that the utility of bundle A is strictly bigger than utility of bundle B if and only if the individual strictly ordinally ranks bundle A higher on his ordinal scale than bundle B. And, you know, there's obvious statements along those lines. So it's true. The utility function isn't, doesn't mean anything. And you could substitute it, right? A, a good textbook will tell you you know, if you have, don't ascribe any significance or realism to the particular utility function because any monotonic transformation of that would be the same thing. Or if you're in the von Neumann Morgenstern world of expected utility, it's any, what is it, uh, positive affine transformation, like a linear transformation, AX plus B, where A is positive transformation of the original utility function would still obey everything. So you realize, okay, the fact that the one utility function we're working with in our problem set says Jim gets 18 utils from three apples and zero bananas. It's not that 18 utils really means something because you could just use a utility function that's two times it. And now he gets 36 utils from the, that bundle. And, it's this, and it does the same work, right? So that's, that should show you that utils don't really mean anything. And this is just convenient shorthand. 
Okay, so that Brian is right in terms of the theory, and good economists know that. However, now that I said that, and, and that's the area where I was really disillusioned when I first went to NYU, because I went in there thinking, oh, yeah, mainstream theorists believe in cardinal utils. Uh-huh. And then I learned that stuff. I was like, oh, no, they don't. I can't believe it. But you know what? They do believe in cardinal utility. <laughs> okay, 95% of mainstream economists believe in cardinal utility. Um, also, too, when it comes to like progressive taxation, I mean, it's, uh, let's see, I'll, re- I'll read from Paul Krugman here. This is from an op-ed from Paul Krugman. And he says, uh, underlying the diamond size analysis, which concluded that top marginal income tax rates of 70 plus percent are optimal, are two propositions, diminishing marginal utility and competitive markets. Diminishing marginal utility is the common sense notion that an extra dollar is worth a lot less in satisfaction to people with very high incomes than to those with low incomes. Give a family with an annual income of $20,000 an extra $1,000, and it will make a big difference to their lives. Give a guy who makes $1 million an extra thousand, and he'll barely notice it. Okay, so that's Paul Krugman. What I just read to you is like a standard fallacy that when I was in undergrad and reading essays on this stuff that we would use to show you know, to, to guard against in the free market community, like to show, you know, just because there's diminishing marginal utility, don't think that means that, oh yeah, a dollar to a billionaire means less to him than a dollar to a homeless guy. That, that No, that's just a confusion in terms. Okay. So that's, that's the issue. Um, so I'm sure Paul Krugman is aware of some of those standard proofs in consumer theory you know, he probably learned it in grad school or something and then moved on because that's not his area, but just casual talk. And also, I, unfortunately, folks, I couldn't find it. But Tyler Cowen once, like, I don't know, 10 years ago on Marginal Revolution just had this offhand remark about, do rich people have a, a lower marginal utility of income than poor people? Of course they do. And I don't see why, you know, so many of my colleagues dogmatically refuse to accept this or something like that. All right. <laughs> so, yes, Brian is right that, strictly speaking, the use of cardinal utility functions doesn't necessarily commit you to believing in cardinal utility in the real world. But in practice, most mainstream economists do believe that. So partly what's going on here is the two senses of the terms. And and, and this really underlies, I think, the, the huge disagreement that Brian and, and I were having on the podcast episode the, when I interviewed him and just more generally when, you know, I, I know like Walter Block is trying to argue with him. And let me try it this way. So Walter has this example where he says, look, there's certain technical terms that have a, you know, a very specific jargon meaning in economics or in any technical field, but don't, that don't necessarily mean the same thing that they mean when it comes to, uh, you know, common sense man on the street language. So the example that Walter uses is work. And he says, so, you know, in everyday usage, if I'm just holding a barbell at arm's length in my, you know, my, my, arms start aching and eventually I got to put it down because my arm is sore. You know, I did work there. Oh, geez, that was hard work holding up that weight, wasn't it? But to a physicist, just holding a weight steady, you're not doing work because in physics, work is, you know, force applied through a distance. All right. And so just standing still holding a weight against the force of gravity, that's not doing any work. All right. So that was an example Walter gave where work to a physicist doesn't line up with what work to everybody else means. And yet, you know, you wouldn't say physics is stupid. You would just say, okay, well, that's the term they chose. And so likewise, 
because people a lot of times will say stuff like, what are you talking about? We do interpersonal utility comparisons all the time, right? When a parent has to decide how much of the pizza goes to the children and the family, you know, you're doing stuff like that. Or if a judge has to rule on, you know, there, there was some civil case and damages were inflicted on the defense or on the plaintiff and we got to compensate somehow. I mean, yeah, there's a sense in which the judge has to get inside the head of the victim and decide, well, how much did this hurt you? What would compensate, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's all fine. And yes, there's an obvious sense in which I know what you mean if you say a dollar means more to a poor guy than to a rich guy. I, I understand. I'm not saying that's nonsense talk. But what we're saying is in the context of utility theory and you know consumer theory, where we're trying to explain the formation of market prices and we do it by saying, ah, let's start with subjective value theory, assume people have subjective preferences, and then that's the, the foundation, the building blocks by which we're going to build up price formation and explain it that way. I'm saying in that realm that no, what, what you mean by utility in that realm does not line up with those common sense man on the street usages. And, and just because, and this is, you know, getting to the heart of the, uh, the dispute with Brian, if I choose A over B, it's because A gave me more utility. We can talk like that. You can say, I preferred it. It was higher on my value scale. Okay. It doesn't make sense to say I chose A over B because I was indifferent, right? So th that's what I was getting at with my interview with him is he was, he actually said that, oh yeah, we use indifference to explain choices all the time. And no, we, we don't. That doesn't make sense. Okay. And let me just bring up, I don't want to forget this. Brian was doing all this stuff about, oh no, in, in real life through introspection, I can be indifferent between a red and a green sweater. And this is the point that, that Gene really fleshed out that I liked in his critique. Yeah, sure. You can be indifferent between the color of two sweaters, just like you might not care about the exact weight, right? So if I pick, I go into a store and there's a red sweater on the left and a green one on the right, especially if I'm colorblind and I grab the one on the left, that doesn't prove that I preferred green to red or whatever colors I said, I got to forget. Brian could just say, yeah, you're indifferent between the colors. That's fine. But the point is, it doesn't make sense to say, oh, the reason I picked the red one is because I was indifferent between green and red. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it doesn't even make any sense. And, and that's what, what Gene was getting at. Like, just like you could, you know, there's the spin on the electrons and, and this, you know, and say which one has more electrons with a certain spin. I don't care. I mean, you know, most people don't even know about that. But you wouldn't say, oh, the reason you picked the left one was because of this charge on the electron or the spin on the electrons line up a certain way. You say, no, I'm indifferent. But that's not the explanation for why I chose one versus the other. So that's the issues. Nobody's denying you could be indifferent or not care about certain attributes. It just means that when we're trying to explain actual choices, you would never use your indifference as the motive, as, as the explanation. That's, you know, this is a very simple point. And yet Brian didn't seem to get that that's what we were saying. And then too, when he was when he was trying, it was his example. He was trying to show me, no, look at how fruitful indifference analysis can be. Like, let's say we're explaining why people would move from one state to another when conditions change. And say, okay, so yeah, the taxes in Florida, all of a sudden, you know, they have a state income tax. And so some people move out of Florida. So how would we explain that? And clearly the people who moved, it's because they prefer the new states to staying in Florida and clearly for most of the people who stay in Florida, it's because they strictly prefer staying in Florida to going somewhere else. And then 
it could be, you know, maybe there are some people that are indifferent, but there need not be, right? And the only way we're sure that there has to exist somebody who's indifferent is if you assume there's an infinite continuum of people. But in practice, if for a finite number of people, which in the real world is always going to be the case, I could explain it by saying, yeah, the people who moved strictly preferred going to another state versus staying in Florida. And the people who stayed in Florida strictly preferred staying in Florida than being anywhere else. Boom. I just explained everything and I didn't use indifference. Okay. So that's, <laughs> and, and, and again, I'm not picking that. That was Brian's example to show me how powerful indifference analysis is when explaining choices. So I get what, I think I get what Brian's coming, where he's coming from. He wants to say stuff like, okay, but you know, we're trying to analyze the impact of a change. So for example, his, his thing about, um, well, I'll, let me stick with the, with the state one. I don't need to change examples to throw more stuff at you guys. So uh, to, I think what Brian is getting at is, well, now let me, let me switch examples because it's going to be easier with this other example. So he said something like, if I asked somebody, what, would, what amount of money would make you indifferent to spending a night in prison? Okay, and so yeah, if, if, if I said, would you spend a night in prison for a billion dollars? Of course I would. Would you spend a night in prison for a penny? No, of course not. And so I said that, and then Brian said, yeah, see what I'm talking about, there's much more in between. Right, and my point was, for each thing you do, the answer could be strict, right? So I'm not saying you would just stop there, then you start whittling it down. And you say, okay, would you spend a night in prison for a million dollars? Oh yeah, sure. Okay, so now we lower the ceiling. Would you spend a night in prison for $10? No, absolutely not. Okay, so now we, we raise the floor and you keep going. And so I, I think Brian's point is, that, oh, so the, you know, the way to really isolate it is you, you go to the point at which you're indifferent. And now if I want to say, okay, what if I tell you the prison doesn't have air conditioning? And so presumably the point of indifference jumps up a bunch and you could ask different people and you could see, you know, oh, air conditioning is really important to this guy because now it went from, you know, he would need $6,000 to spend a night in prison and now he would need 16000 if he doesn't have air conditioning. Whereas this guy over here has jumped only from 8500 to 9300 so, you know, that guy doesn't really consider the heat to be that big a deal or, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think that's what Brian has in mind. And so he's, you know, showing, look at all the, you know, the, the thought experiments we can do and how much we can isolate and, and hone our thinking when we're using this concept of indifference. But again, my point is, notice for each example, there's a whole range over which there isn't indifference. And the only reason we're really saying there is, is because of the continuity, right? So for any actual choice I give the person when I say, would you stay in prison for this amount of money? The person might report yes or no and, and never have to say I'm indifferent. Okay. And the only reason you really are kind of forced into it is you're going to say, well, wait a minute, you would want to stay in prison for 60 or for, let's say for $6,000 in zero cents. And you wouldn't stay in prison for $5,999.99 cents. So what if I gave you an extra half penny? Then would you? And so there's, you know, the idea is at some point you would say, well, I don't know, I'm kind of indifferent or geez, I can't decide because they're, they're so similar. Okay, so that that's where Brian's coming from. But again, the only reason you're sort of backed into that is by assuming that the, the, the good in question, if you will, is infinitely divisible. Otherwise, you need not ever end up there. All right, so that's, and again, it's, it's a, that's what I was saying in the interview. It's like a knife edge result that really what you're doing to explain action to say, why did you stay in prison versus not? It makes sense to say, oh, because, you know, why did I take the $7,000 to spend a night in prison? Because I preferred $7,000 to the leisure of 
that night of not being in prison. That's why. Or why didn't you take the money? Because I preferred staying out of prison to getting the $7,000 or whatever. Okay, so the, it's, it's never that you would have to cite indifference to explain your actions. Okay, so that's what the fundamental Austrian point is on that stuff. Now, let me mention, Brian is right that in some applications, the Austrians don't live up to their own methodological strictures. So, for example, this is something I grappled with when I was writing Lessons for the Young Economist. I realized, I might have realized it earlier, I don't remember. But, you know, we like to say in the free market camp that in a free competitive labor market, workers either get paid or tend to get paid their mar the marginal product of labor. And we'll say, oh, let's say, you know, the worker... Uh, if you hire the worker, you make more widgets per hour and you, you, know, you make $10 more revenue per hour. And let's assume there's no other increase in explicit costs from hiring the worker, you know, other inputs and stuff. So, oh, so it's got to be the case that in equilibrium, the worker gets paid $10 an hour because he got paid less than that. Some other firm would bid him away. So strictly speaking, that sounds like indifference analysis. So, I, you know, I, I, Brian is not crazy for saying sometimes Austrians violate their own rules. Right. Strictly speaking, why would somebody, why would an employer hire a worker at $10 an hour if the worker only added $10 an hour to his bottom line, not considering the wages? Because then the employer's not making any money from that. Why would he do that? So he would pay maybe $9.99. And he, so that kind of thing is what I'm getting at. That, and the solution to me, well, you can go either way with it. I think you can, you can see where both camps are coming from. But it's not unreasonable in my mind for someone to say, faced with that, to say as an Austrian or let's say a Rothbardian, huh, okay, you're right, never thought of that. I probably should be more careful in the future when I speak like that. And yeah, it, it, there's a tendency for workers to get paid near the marginal value product. But strictly speaking, the employer wouldn't offer exactly, especially if you're taking into account, you know, transaction costs and geez, it's hard to go search and find workers and, you know what I mean? Okay, so that... I, I get that. And even as a business owner myself, I, th I think that's more realistic that especially in an open-ended world that's grossly far from equilibrium that, yeah, you're looking for quote bargains, right? And so, yeah, when like the, the people that I pay to do stuff, it's, it's not if they asked me for one more penny, I'd probably lay them off or something. I hope they don't hear that. And likewise too, you know, the people that I work for, I'm probably contributing more to their organization than they're paying me. And if I were to die of a heart attack, it's not that they would say, eh, well, we don't care because we were paying Bob exactly what he was putting in. Okay. So th there is all that stuff going on. And so I think to the extent that Brian in certain points of his essay says, Hey, wait a minute, Rothbard over here does this. Like, like for example, he says, ah, supply and demand curves wouldn't necessarily intersect unless we assume continuity. Yeah, that's true. And so I think the right thing is not to say, oh, let's assume continuity. I think the thing is, is to say, yeah, we might teach supply and demand curves and just draw smooth curves that intersect at a point. And say, oh, that's the equilibrium. But then you might add as an afterthought, at least. Now, of course, kids in the real world, you know, these points aren't like this. And in any given thing, you might not actually have a literal equality of quantity supplied and quantity demanded. To me, that makes more sense. That's more realistic than to just say, well, we're going to say something false but convenient in this branch of economics, so we might as well be consistent and say false but convenient things elsewhere too. So yeah, that, that's the way I would handle those sorts of issues. Let's take a break from my discussion of Brian Kaplan's essay to make my pitch for why you guys want to support me in doing three episodes a week. It's going to allow me to do an interview 
a deep dive such as this particular episode, but then also something more on current events, whether it's foreign policy or whatever the latest shenanigans coming out domestically are. There's also plenty of material where I just, I can't incorporate it into the structure right now because, oh, it's getting crowded out by the interviews and the the more deep dive stuff, right? So there's lots of material that I could be producing. It's just, I can't justify the time I have to take to get everything ready. And also there really are out-of-pocket costs in order to uh, get these episodes ready for your consumption. So as I explained previously, some of you may have heard the pitch. I need a total of 300 of you to step forward and pledge $12 a month in a recurring contribution. And that's what would allow me to go ahead and, and use the time in order to do three episodes a week. Where's that number come from? Well, it works out to a dollar an episode, right? You're doing $12 a month, three episodes a week, you do the math. Okay, so that's where that number comes from. Already since I announced this offer or this proposal, a bunch of you have stepped forward. I really appreciate that. We're not quite at the number 300 yet though. And so I'm going to reiterate the claim. So please, if you like the show, if you want to see more episodes, I encourage you to go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute to sign up. And also, if you do that, you'll get into the secret Facebook group. It's a secret. Keep it quiet. Thanks, everybody. Okay, when it comes to welfare economics, I agree with Brian and I did so, you know, I admitted this in the, in the episode, the interview, certain moves that Rothbard makes when he's trying to deny the legitimacy of, let's, let's say, externalities. I think they prove too much. So it's not that what Rothbard says is crazy. It's just, okay, but, you know, Rothbard, if you're going to use that argument there to knock down the existence of externalities, well, then, you know, that, that poses problems elsewhere. So, for example, I'm just going to paraphrase here. You can go see if you think this is fair. But I, I think Rothbard basically was saying something like, hey, um, we know market outcomes are always win-win. And so they increase you know, their Pareto improvements, if you want to use mainstream welfare language that, you know, we, some, some uh, guy sells a pornographic magazine to a customer, the, the seller benefits, at least ex ante, the, the customer benefits ex ante, you know, according to his own value scale. And if some religious third party says, ah, that's, that's against God's will, or some feminist third party says, ah, that's exploiting women, you know, well, th- that shouldn't make us wonder whether actually that voluntary exchange you know, helped two people, namely the seller and the buyer, and didn't affect anybody else, which is what a Pareto improvement requires, Rothbard says, because, hey, you know, that's, they didn't demonstrate it in action. You know, we didn't, I, I don't, how do I know if you're the religious person that you actually were harmed by the, uh, you know, by, by that? So, I mean, it, so it's true that strictly speaking, if we're going to go back to the methodological foundation of using preferences to explain action that, yeah, somebody saying to me, hey, that offends me and I'm hurt because of it. Strictly speaking, as praxeologists, all we can conclude is this person got more utility from saying the sentence, I object to pornographic sales, than he got from not saying that. That's what I can conclude about that person's preferences from his statement. Okay, so that's, that's true. You know, and really, I don't know whether... You know, and there's a sense even in which it doesn't even make sense, right? And this goes back to, um, if you're familiar with James Buchanan's work on cost for his LSE 
series or something. I, I forget what the exact title is, but he's got these famous essays on cost. And that was one of the points that cost is subjective, right? It doesn't make sense to talk about, you know, someone like someone doesn't impose costs on others, even though we often talk like that in economics, that I try to be careful in my work and to say impose damages or harms. But strictly speaking, cost is realized by the actor and by nobody else. It doesn't really even make sense to say, you know, if I hit you with my car, I didn't impose costs on you because cost is the subjective value you place on the next best alternative from a choice you made. If I'm hitting you with a car, the cost is to me like, oh, geez, now, you know, what's the value of my life where I'm not a convicted manslaughterer or something? Okay. I inflicted damages on you. I hurt you, but I didn't impose costs on you in the economic sense. Okay. So likewise, there is a sense in which if you want to say what, what we mean by utility and preferences and whatever is just that's the way we explain an individual's choice behavior or actions. Okay. And then, yeah, it doesn't even make sense to say your actions lowered somebody else on their value scale. Okay. I'm fine with that. But um, I, I think you do run, you could possibly run into some serious problems if you do that. If you open that can of worms, I agree with Brian. There's lots of other areas where then we're going to be in trouble. So just to go back to what I said, somebody's saying to you, hey, I object to that transaction. I am harmed because of it. And really all we conclude is that the person um, likes to, you know, vo voiced that opinion rather than the, the utility he got from keeping his mouth shut. Okay, but then likewise, it, yeah, the, the, the people who are transacting, um, it's, it's also not clear why they're doing it. Okay, again, it, it could be that somebody's kidnapped my my family member and said, you got to go give money to that person. And the fact that the guy was handing me a magazine's incidental, right? So there's there's lots of stuff like that where you realize that, okay, you could get into trouble, all right? Incidentally, by the way, now that I'm saying it to you, the, the case Brian's objection seems less of a big deal to me now than it than I thought going into this, even though, so I don't know if that means because my own views have moved a little bit or what, but in any event, there you go. So I'm I'm saying I at least was sympathetic to what Brian was saying on that one, that um, Rothbard's way that he's going to get rid of utility or sorry, like negative externalities and such. It's I think it's possible if you're going to use that approach, then there's a lot of good things we want to say about voluntary market exchanges that at the very least we would no longer be sure about. Like we we you might say so you might say oh yeah if something is voluntary good but we could never know if it is or not. You know, maybe that's at the very least what what you take away from that. While we're talking about, let me just mention is some red meat here for those of you who are into this stuff and really want to geek out. When it comes to Pareto optimality, make sure you're thinking about it the right way. If let's say there exists an anarchist, and no matter what the government does, the anarchist is going to object and say that makes me worse off. All right, that doesn't prove that there's no Pareto optimality from government action. Actually, what that proves is no matter what the government does, everything's Pareto optimal, All right? So make sure, make sure you're thinking about it the right way. I, I think I've seen Austrians get that backwards, all right? So again, if there exists some anarchist such that any action the government takes besides, let's say, disbanding, the, that would make the anarchist worse off in his value system, then that doesn't prove... Aha! See, no matter what the government does, it's gonna, it's gonna um, make it's gonna be Pareto inefficient. No, it's the other way around. Everything's Pareto efficient. If no matter what the government does, it's gonna hurt this one guy and make him worse off. Uh, because what Pareto efficient, what Pareto inefficiency means 
is that there exists an alternative arrangement such that everybody's better off or some people are better off and nobody's worse off. So if we're right now at a position where no matter which way we move, this anarchist is going to object, then that means where we are right now is Pareto efficient because there doesn't exist a Pareto improvement. Uh, another puzzle, just to make sure you're thinking about the right way that I would use in my class, it is possible that you could start out at a Pareto inefficient spot. You could move to a Pareto efficient spot and hurt people along the way. Okay, so again, society could move from a Pareto inefficient to a Pareto efficient allocation and hurt people with the move, make them worse off. So if the way you were thinking about these concepts meant that was impossible to you, you're thinking about the wrong way. So I'll just leave it at that. Okay, we got just two more main topics here that I want to hit, namely ABCT and socialist calculation debate. So Austrian business cycle theory, Brian brings up the standard objections of rational expectations. There, you know, the, the, the two-pronged response is to say, um, for one thing, it's like the incentives. So central banks handing out cheap money, even if everybody knows, yeah, this is cheap money, still it might be the correct thing for you to do is to take it and ride the bubble, even though you know this thing's going to blow up in our faces. Okay, so there's that element. Uh, also, to the extent that you think market prices do something, well, if the central bank makes the interest rate artificially low, you know, distorts the price, you can't just say, ah, so every business person should just know the central bank's doing that and take that into account. So now there's no more mail investment. Well, no, that if, if that were if it were that easy, then we wouldn't need prices. Okay. So again, if you think market prices are important to help coordinate activity, you can't say, ah, so if the central bank comes in and messes with prices, business people should just rationally take that into account and offset it. Well, well no, because if they could do that again, the, you know, in other words, if business people could just look at the underlying real factors and know what the market interest rate would have been absent government intervention, well, then they wouldn't need the market price in the first place. All right, so there's, there's that element too. Brian also gets into stuff that Tyler Cowen picked up and that was, which is what prompted me to write my so-called sushi article, which by the way, Paul Krugman said was the best exposition he'd ever seen of, uh, of the Austrian approach to business cycles. So real briefly, Brian is saying, wait a minute, in the Austrian story, in the boom period, there's like an expansion in the capital goods industries that isn't justified by underlying preferences. And then there's a bust where the underlying preferences reassert themselves. And so how come, Brian asks, there's not a boom in the consumer goods industries during the depression phase? So according to Austrian business cycle theory, he alleges the story doesn't really make sense. You would expect maybe there to be you know, a boom in capital goods industries during the so-called boom phase, but then there would just be a boom in the consumer goods industry later on. Like, why, why is there this period of massive unemployment? So it has to do with capital consumption, okay? And, so, and that's why I was the, the, my sushi article, it, it has to stress the importance of capital theory. I mean, that's, I think that's the title I gave it. I didn't call it the sushi article, but it, I have an example in there that uses sushi. So you'll, you'll see if you read it, why it's called that colloquially. So the idea being we have a bunch of workers and they're using capital equipment and they have a certain you know productivity. And now let's say for some reason they become misled and they start, and instead of maintaining the capital stock, like if it's boats and nets that they go use to go get raw, you know, to go get fish, then they're making sushi. 
let's say they, for some reason, devote themselves to this other project. So the labor that used to go into maintaining the capital stock now goes into something else. And that might temporarily boost consumption. I forget what I said in the article. But let's say the workers, you know, go and pick more coconuts or something on, the, on this nice tropical island. They go pick more coconuts instead of using the labor that they normally do to replenish the, the nets and to, you know, make, you know, repair any damage to the boats and whatever. So temporarily they're eating more, you know, they're eating the same amount of fish and now they're eating more coconuts. So their, their standard of living seems to have gone up. That's great. It's a boom period. They feel wealthy. They might even work fewer hours. Okay. Because now it looks like their labor is more productive in terms of look at what we get to consume per hour of labor. We get fish like before and we're getting more coconuts in here. This is great. But of course, really what's going on is they're consuming capital. Now the nets are getting frayed and the boats are you know, getting worn down or barnacles or whatever, and they're not fixing it. And so at some point the nets are going to snap or the boats are going to spring a leak. And now the crisis is going to hit. And they're going to realize, you know, it's going to manifest itself why they were behaving improperly before when they weren't maintaining that stuff and they were going and getting coconuts. And so clearly their standard of living has to drop because now labor is less physically productive no matter what they do. So that's, you know, that's what's going on. So when you say, why, why should there be a bust phase? Well, that's why. And also, you know, depending on the situation, you know, the elder calls the people and maybe they realize, okay, geez, we really can't without nets and stuff, the people, those of you who used to go out fishing, you know, we're not going to send you out and try to catch fish with your bare hands. That's, that's a waste of time. You might as well just hang out, you know, go spend time with your kids while those members of the village who know how to repair boats and nets, you're going to be working overtime doing that. But, you know, if, if everybody in the village doesn't have those skills, like if some people were trained fishermen, but other ones were really good at fixing boats, then you can see how some of the villagers, it might not be worthwhile for them to do anything for a bit until the capital stock gets repaired. And so that's the analog of unemployment during a recession, right? So during a recession, it's not that no one goes to work anymore. It's just that some people don't. Arnold Kling has this great metaphor he uses calling recalculation. And I think that's, that's great where he kind of rediscovered a lot of the insights coming from the Austrians. I'll put a link to that too, if I can find one of his good expositions on that. Okay, so that's, so that's, the, that's the story. And, and also, and Tyler had mentioned this too when he critiqued ABCT to say something like, you know, why is it that if, if workers get pulled out of certain industries and into the capital goods industries, you know, during the boom period, why, why doesn't unemployment go up or something? You know, in other words, if, if workers getting sucked from the consumer to the capital goods industries in the boom period, why is that considered good and unemployment doesn't go up? But then when they got to go back in the bust phase, you know, why is that when there's unemployment? You know, that, that kind of argument. And it's because, think of it this way, this is real simplistic, but it, it works. The central bank's just printing up $100 bills and handing them out to business people. And then the business people are bidding away workers from their existing jobs, you know, from the original equilibrium and sucking them into long-term capital goods industries. So the workers are voluntarily quitting and going and taking higher wages. So that's why there's not a period of unemployment. It's because they're not just quitting their job and then applying, you know, then looking at the want ads and stuff. And then six months later, taking a job that offers more, they're, you know, they're getting bit away pretty soon. They're not leaving their other job until they have a better offer. Whereas in the bust phase, there's a bunch of operations that are unprofitable and they just lay off all their workers. And those workers now have to go take a, a pay cut. So you're reluctant to do that. 
you're going to stay unemployed for a bit while you're looking for options to see what's the least bad one. All right. So that's, that's the, the fundamental difference and why there's an asymmetry between the boom and the bust. All right. So the, you know, this is pretty standard stuff, but they asked the question and that's the answer. Okay. Last thing Brian is bringing up, uh, the socialist calculation debate and among other things, he's saying, you know, how do we know that this is the most fundamental thing? You know, maybe it's a problem of incentives. Maybe it's something else. So here, I mean, it's, it's more of a logical thing, right? That Mises is saying, even if we stipulate for the sake of argument that the central planners and the comrades are all willing to work for the common good and they're not just selfish and what, whatnot, still there's this fundamental calculation problem, right? So that's the sense in which it's more fundamental and also, you know, me, Brian quotes Mises to be saying stuff like, "There's not a, it's not that there's a, a, a choice. If it were just a matter of socialism being less productive or something, that would be one thing. Economics would have nothing to say. But actually, no, it's more, it's more fundamental than that. Socialism is not a viable economic system. I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, and Brian's like, well, how does he know that? I mean, yeah, output might be lower, but, you know, suppose socialism makes us 20% less efficient. Uh, you know, why couldn't we survive with that? I mean, Mises says that economics isn't quantitative, it's qualitative. So I don't get how he's making this quantitative judgment call. And I, I think he's just misunderstanding what Mises means, right? Mises is saying it's it's not a social system. Like he, it, you don't have an economy. And also this has to do with the collapse of, of the USSR. I know, and I'm, I'm differing here from some Austrians, but it, it's. I think it's wrong when people say, oh, it was an open question. Um, you know, there was the socialist calculation debate, whatever. But then when the Soviet Union fell, that proved Mises was right. I think that does a disservice to people. I mean, I, I get how if a, a former socialist with the fall of the Soviet Union says, geez, you know, maybe, maybe that Mises was on to something. Okay, that's cool. But I'm saying fans of Mises all along, I think you're misleading people as to what the critique was or what the argument was if you say the fall of the Soviet Union proved Mises was right, right? So to me, what Mises was saying is from day one, if you abolish private property, then you're groping in the dark. There is not economic calculation going on, right? That's not the same thing as saying a regime based on that is going to lose public support and be overthrown, right? That, so it's not that the socialist calculation debate or it's not that the Soviet Union finally succumbed to the socialist calculation problem in the 80s. That's, that's not what, what's going on. There's, there's, to the extent that they had actual central planning, they were suffering from it all along, from day one. All right, And so that's my reading of like Mises' theory and his words, but I also have his own statement. He gave a speech one time called Why Socialism Always Fails. I, I know I got a cassette tape for it. Um, and incidentally, if you guys heard that, that, that Contra Cruz ad where I'm doing the impression of Mises, that that's what I'm riffing off of, right? So that's actually, you know, Mises says something in there, not about Dave Smith, about something else. And I'm just changing the words. That's where I got that from, right? So when I was in high school or something, I got this cassette or maybe in college, I got a cassette I ordered from somewhere was, hey, a rare lecture from Mises that was captured on audio, okay? And so he gives his lecture about why socialism doesn't work or why it always fails and then someone, and then there's a Q&A, and someone says to him, can socialism survive without capitalist countries? So I think what happened is that guy was a, you know, was a student of Mises, like a, you know, a, a fan, had read his work, and was lobbing Mises a softball 
because in Mises' work, he said something like the effects of, you know, the, the, the ramifications of this calculation problem for an isolated socialist commonwealth would be far less than if it were worldwide. Because if an isolated country goes socialist, they can still use market prices generated abroad. So they're not the exact correct prices, but at least, you know, they give them some guidance. Whereas if you had a worldwide government that went socialist, then they would really just be without, you know, any, any guidance at all. All right. So he said something like that. And by the way, he said that at the beginning. He didn't say it like decades later because, oh, geez, how come the Soviet Union didn't collapse and I look like an idiot? Let me try to, that's not what happened. He said that from the beginning when it was still theoretical. Okay, so I think the person who asked him that question, that's what he meant. He was just lobbing a softball waiting for Mises to, and say, ah, yes, right. The Soviet Union has been benefiting from the Wall Street Journal and whatever, the commodity prices generated in the trade manual. And that's not what Mises said. Mises, and I don't know if Mises just didn't get what the guy was going for, but the way Mises answered the question is he says, so the, again, the guy's question was, he said, can the Soviet Union, or Mises communism, he said, can socialism survive without capitalist countries? Something like that. And Mises said, what does it mean to say, can it survive? He says, I know what it means to say, can a man survive? He said, but, you know, socially, he said, look, there is socialism in the USSR. He says, so this speech obviously was like in the 60s or something, right? So Mises said, there is socialism in the, in the USSR. And, you know, then he just went on to, to elaborate on what his point was. So in that exchange, I thought it was interesting, right? So Mises was sort of baffled. And he's like, yeah, I know what it means. Say, can a man survive? And you know, talk about calories and, you know, oxygen and stuff. And then he's saying the Soviet Union, you know, it, it has survived. It exists. They do have socialism. So to me, what Mises was doing there was he was trying to get the guy to see, look, I'm not talking about the, the viability of the regime or whether you could, whether socialism could exist. I think that's maybe one way of putting it. That sometimes people, when they try to summarize or paraphrase Mises, they say, ah, Mises proves socialism is impossible. And no, he didn't. That's not what he was saying. If that was what he was saying, then he's wrong, right? That socialism existed. And Mises actually said that. I think that's why he said that to the guy to say, there is socialism in the USSR right now. Because he was trying to say, yeah, socialism exists. I'm not denying it can exist. But what he's saying is they don't have the rational allocation of resources. They don't have an economy. So yeah, they have an economy that says there's resources that are being used to make stuff and they're handing out goods to people but there's no economic calculation. There's no way of no, of reckoning whether these are being used efficiently or not, even ex post. So there's no economizing going on to the, you know, strictly speaking. All right. So that's, you know, to me, that's what, what Mises point was. And so I, I don't think that's, I think Brian was interpreting Mises calculation critique to be a statement about the viability of socialism or something about, you know, the, the output per head is going to be so low that people are going to be outraged by it. And I don't think that's what Mises was getting at. Okay, well, this is already way longer than I thought it was going to be. Why don't I stop there? Thanks for your attention, folks. And I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.